We are continuing with the fifth way, and one of the things that uh, we're up to the point now, we're actually going to talk about the five ways and what they mean. Everything that we've been talking about for the last few weeks has been the journey to the journey, what it takes for us as modern Westerners even to get to the feet of Jesus, who is a, an ancient Easterner, and all that the unlearning and all of the disorientation and everything that it takes to really be able to apprehend his message. But here we are. Here we are at these ways of doing business. And I think it's really important for us as we go forward is to examine the ways that we go about getting the things that we need. How do we go about getting those things? Okay, first of all, does anyone in here have everything they need and want in life? Let me see your hands. Good! (laughs) I haven't seen one back there, you know? God is good. Yeah, exactly. What's that line from the movie? When, when your real life exceeds your dreams, what do you do? Keep it to yourself. Okay. Um, so we've got three people here whose wants and needs are totally met. For most of us, there are things that we still need, things that we're still striving for, things that are sometimes screaming and critical and traumatic, and other times it's just a steady drumbeat. And even these three who right now can say, yes, God has met all my needs, maybe tomorrow that'll change. Maybe somebody gets sick. Maybe someone loses a job. Maybe the stock market fails. Who knows? But human life is fraught with all sorts of needs and wants and vicissitudes. There's a word for you. Changes in life that are going to take you in and out of focus, in and out of that comfort zone that we all long for. And so the question is, how do we go about filling those needs? What is it that we actually do to fill those needs? And how strong is that call to fill them as well? Now, I'm a literature geek, and I've been that way since I can remember. When I was a kid, I loved the Iliad and the Odyssey. I don't know if any of you know the story of the Trojan War and the return from the Trojan War of Odysseus and his crew back to Ithaca. But there is a wonderful story as Odysseus is sailing back from the ruins of Troy, and it's a 10-year journey. It takes him 10 years to get back. And one of the challenges that he faces is sailing past the island of the sirens. And I don't know if you know about the sirens, but the sirens were these mythical female bird creatures that lived on an island, and they would sing to the mariners as they went past. And their song was so compelling, so irresistible, that if you heard it, you had to turn your boat toward the sound, and then you'd crash on the rocks and drown. Well, Odysseus wants to hear this siren song, this call. He wants to find out if it really is as irresistible as everybody says it is. So he devises a plan. He has his crew lash him to the mast and put beeswax in their ears. And he says, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, no matter how much I plead, don't untie me. Right? And so they sail into earshot of the siren song and he is unprepared for what he hears there. And he is thrashing and he is cursing. He's screaming at them to untie him. If everything in him, he just has to get to the sound. But the beeswax does its job. And after a while, they sail out of earshot and everything is safe. That story has survived for something like 3,000 years, 3,500 years, because it so speaks to our psychological and emotional and spiritual condition as human beings. These needs of ours, these things that we are, 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 are just, have other drives in us as human beings are so strong, so compelling that we will do anything to meet those needs. That siren song is calling us right now. It's calling you in a thousand different ways. 
And if you think about the things that are so compelling in your life, the things that you need so badly, the things that you long for, and you think about what you would do to fill those needs, that's the siren's call that is calling you. And so what Scripture has identified for us beautifully are three basic human drives, three basic needs that we have that are so strong and so compelling that they pull us. And if we're not careful, they'll pull us onto the rocks. Because there are four basic ways that we typically meet those needs, meet those drives, fulfill those existential yearnings that we have as human beings. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. And before we get there, what we want to talk about is Jesus, of course, because Jesus has to be at the center of all of this if it's going to make any sense. So the question is, we are prey to the siren's call. We are driven by all of these existential needs. But was Jesus? Was Jesus immune to that call? Or did he have to negotiate it as well? Now see, we, looking at Jesus the way we do, we think of him as pretty static. He was born God, he lived God, he died God, he resurrected as God, and everything is just the same. But if you really look at the clues in Scripture, what you find out is that Jesus is not static. He's dynamic, just like the rest of us. He had to learn and grow like everybody else did. Luke 2 tells us, right after the debacle with his parents in Jerusalem, you remember that one? Where he splits off when when his parents go in. Six days caravan ride into Jerusalem, the big city, and he goes off. They're three days back home, on their way back home, before they realize he's not in the caravan. And they have to ride back three days. So... They find him, and his mother, of course, is beside herself. Son, why did you do this to me? And he just says, well, don't you know, I'm supposed to be about my father's business. But he learns something in that situation. As he sees his mother's face, most likely sees her eyes, see how much he's hurt her, because the scriptures tell us that he returns and stays in submission to them. And then the scripture says something really, really important, even though it's understated, that he grew in wisdom and stature. But the scripture is telling us that Jesus had to learn. If there was a time where he grew, then there was a time when he was less and a time when he's more. In other words, it was dynamic. It was, it was subject to change. Now, how did he learn? How did he grow? Well, now the scripture gives us really no clue. There are 18 unaccounted years, for, unaccounted years in Jesus' life. From that moment at age 12 up to when he appears at the River Jordan to be baptized by his cousin John. Now there we start to get another clue. He's baptized by John, and immediately after that, in Matthew, the word is ekvalo. He is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. In Luke here, where we're going to read, he's led around. Full of the Spirit, he's led around. Same idea, though. There's, there's a, a force to this. There's an urgency to this. It's not a gentle leading. It's a driving. That Greek word, ekvalo, is a driving into, like you would drive horses You know, you're driving something. So there's a lot of force here. So he goes into the wilderness. Let's take a, just take a quick read of this so we can kind of get oriented to what's going on here because this is the, this is it. This is what we get in scripture about Jesus growing, about Jesus dealing with these human drives. At Luke 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. 
And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And then he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. (laughs) I just love that. Until an opportune time. When would that be? Probably the next day. But anyway, when you take a look at this, the first thing that strikes you is that numbers play a big role here, a big important part. But numbers not as we normally use them. For us, he went out for a week and 10 days. I'm sorry, he went out for a month and 10 days. For 40 days, he went out. But 40 is a symbolic number. And when you see it, especially when you see it used like this, whether it's 40 years in the wilderness for the Israelites, whether it's 40 days for Jesus in the wilderness, whether it's 40 days for Noah in the ark, whether it's Moses' life cut into three sets of 40, what you're looking at is a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. That's literally what it means. And it's fascinating the the way the numbers work in, in, in Jewish systems is that you can factor them because five is the number of man or the number of initiation and eight is the number of rebirth and so five times eight is 40. And so in those first 10 integers that have all the primary meanings, you can factor out the numbers that are greater. Same thing happens for 12 and for other larger numbers. And so 40 here is to be understood this way. It was a time of trial and testing that led to a rebirth, led to a transformation. Something changed in Jesus from the time that he entered the wilderness and the time that he came out. But it was a lot longer than 40 days. There are 18 unaccounted years here. We don't know how long it was, but it was a long time. Most scholars believe there are 14 years between Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus' conversion on the Damascus Road and the time that he took his first missionary journey. A long time. This stuff doesn't happen overnight. And part of the clue that we get that it was a long time is because Jesus is exhausted. He's hungry. He's famished. This is the idea here that Jesus really had to work at this. There was something that really spent him as he was going through this process. And we don't normally think of Jesus having to go through that kind of process. But it's right here if you read between the lines. The other number that's important is three. Three is a number of perfection or completion. And so these three temptations are meant to represent all of the temptations, all of the trials, all of those human drives and existential needs that we face as human beings. Jesus faced them all through the eyes of this accuser. Let's talk about the devil for a second. Now, it's interesting that here, every time... The word is translated for us in English, it's translated as devil. In the Greek that this is translated from, the word there is diabolos. In the Aramaic behind that, it's even more interesting. It's akel gartza. Akel gartza. You know what that literally means? I didn't think you might. 
It means peace eater. What in the world are we talking about here? Peace eater. Now, this is an Aramaic idiom. Remember, we talked about idiomatic expressions. You all know what those are, right? Okay. So an idiomatic expression is one that you can't... It's just an agreed-upon meaning by any culture. Meaning by any culture. So in the mind of the ancient Jews who spoke Aramaic, if you slandered someone, if you accused someone, you know, if you gossiped about them, what you were doing were eating their pieces. Now, we have an analog to that. We call that person a backbiter, don't we? The same sort of idea. You were eating their pieces, eating the pieces of them. So if you were a peace eater, you were this accuser, this slanderer, this gossip, this, this uh, person who said bad things about someone else. So this Akel Gartza is this idea of the accuser, the challenger, the hinderer, the one who diverts and leads astray. Now, one time, it's interesting, right here at the second, where you see the beginning of the second paragraph, it just says, he led him up and showed him. That he there in the Aramaic translation is actually a different word. It's satana. In Hebrew, that would be hasatan. Hasatan, ha, is the actual definite article. It would be the Satan or the accuser. And here's the idea here in Hebrew about this, this being. It's a title and it's not a personal name. Satan we use as a personal name, but Hasatan or Satana is a title and it means what we've been talking about. The accuser, the adversary, all right? And to the Jewish mind, that challenge, adversary, that, that difficulty that we all face as human beings can be our own inclination to bad choices, our own propensity for evil, or it can actually be an angel of God. Right? This is where it starts to get interesting. Because this angel of God, as we understand Satan, is in opposition to God. A fallen angel who said no to God started his own thing and has been opposing God ever since. But see, to a Jew, that's not possible. To a Jew, they understand God as so sovereign, so strong, so all-powerful that nothing can oppose him. And if every, anything ever did successfully oppose God, that would be equal to God. And that's one God too many. Because there's only one God to the Jews. You kind of see where this is going? They understand Hasatan both as this human inclination, but also as a messenger of God, an actual angel of God. But this angel is working for God, not working against God. God. Now, this sounds so weird, I'm sure, to all of you. But the idea to the Jew is angels don't have free will. They weren't created with free will or because they see God so clearly, there's no other choice for them to make but to obey and to submit and to follow God. But no angel has the ability to make a free choice or to choose other than God's will. We do. We are the only creatures in God's creation that have free will because we are living between heaven and earth. We are living in physical bodies but have the ability to have a spiritual awareness and a spiritual existence. And the tension between those two things is the choice that we have to make between good and evil. It started in the garden with the choice to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this is the way Jews looked at it. We have this choice, but it has to be a real choice. If the choice isn't real, then the good that comes from our choice isn't real either. The love that comes from our choice isn't real either. 
So in order to make the choice real, we need some friction in life. We need a challenge. We need it to be difficult. We need there to be a clear choice that we can make one way or another. And that is what the accuser, the adversary provides. Provides this friction, provides this challenge, makes the choice real. To the Jew, Satan, Hasatan, works for God and provides a necessary function. The same way that a trial lawyer, the prosecuting attorney, would provide a necessary function in the courtroom as being the balance, being the one who brings out the truth. This is just another way of restating what James tells us at the beginning of his book. Count it all joy when you encounter these various trials and tribulations. These are the things that produce endurance, and the endurance takes us to maturity, to perfection, to completion. Without the trial, without the temptation, without the grind, it doesn't happen. Now, I'm not saying that this is what you need to believe. I'm saying this is the culture, this is what the words mean as they were uttered from Jesus and to the people who understood him. Christians have understood this in a different way. I'm not here to tell you which way to go, but I think it's important for us to understand that when we think of these trials or tribulations in our life as so evil, an attack of the enemy that is something that is not godly, what James and what the Jews are there to tell us is no. It's something that is necessary in life if you are going to grow up spiritually and become a mature person. You need this stuff. So however you understand Satan, Hasatan, Akelgartza, <laughs> at least maybe we can start to look at these difficulties in our lives as what they really are, the friends that come to help us to grow. And so here in this story, this portion out of Jesus' life, Hasatan, the accuser, the adversary, is doing his job. He's coming to Jesus and he's making clear-cut choices real to him. He has to choose And he comes to him three times and gives him three specific choices. And this is where it gets really interesting for me because these choices represent all the choices I said because of the number three. And I love the way Henry Nouwen put this together in a book called The Way of the Desert, The Way of the Heart. It was about desert spirituality. And he says, if you look at these, the adversary coming to Jesus and said, turn the stone into bread. That's really the call for us to be relevant Think about it. We need to be relevant. We need to have this connection to something real that is important in people's lives. That's a basic human drive we have. We don't want to be marginalized. We don't want to not matter. We want to be relevant. And what is more relevant than to be able to pull food out of stone? What is more relevant than the food that we need every single day? And so this need to be relevant The accuser is showing Jesus a shortcut, a way to relevance. But Jesus resists that and says, no, this is not the way. My Father in heaven is showing me the way. This ain't it. This shortcut will not work. It will not take me where I need to go. And so he moves on to the next one. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you bow down before me, I will give you control over them because they're mine. This is the call for power. We want to be powerful. We want to be able to change our circumstances to our liking, to our needs. We want to get that advantage, unfair or not. We need that. We need to feel that there is something we can do about these circumstances that make us feel so out of control. And what this really is is a call for security. 
Relevance is a call to connection. We want to be connected. We want to matter. We want to be important in people's lives. The call for power is a call for security. We want to feel like we've got something that we can hold on to that's ours. But Jesus says, no, that ain't going to happen. There's only one God, and he is the one I serve. He is the one that I will worship. And so the accuser moves on, and he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and this point at the temple would be right over the court where all the people would be gathered. And he says, throw yourself down so the angels can bear you up. This is the call to be spectacular. Don't we want to be spectacular? Don't we want to stand head and shoulders above the crowd? How much are people doing now for their 15 minutes of fame? It's like people will do anything to get on YouTube or get on the other tube. They will do anything for that 15 minutes. They want to stand out. They want to stand out in the crowd. It's almost as if you don't have a YouTube page or you don't get on TV. You don't really matter. You don't really exist. And so this need to be spectacular is growing in our culture as people feel more and more faceless, more and more nameless. I was working with someone just trying to get a job. You know, I remember... I hate to tell you how many years ago, 40 years ago, all I had to do was walk into the GTE recruiting office, General Telephone and Electric, for those of you who are too young to know. <laughs> Just walked in and, and sat down with a woman and she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't really know. She read from a whole list of jobs. And I said, well, I kind of like electronics. They said, well, cable splicing is kind of electronics. I walked out with a job. They sent me to two weeks of pole climbing school and I was making a living wage. Where can you do that in our society today? Where can you even sit down face-to-face with a person? You're going through these computer algorithm screens as you fend through all of this stuff on the Internet. More and more faceless, more and more nameless, more and more of this desire for people to be spectacular, to stand out, to excel, to be different, to do something. And this is really a call for meaning. We as human beings need to feel connected, we need to feel secure, and we need to feel meaningful and have meaning in our lives. And these three temptations, to be relevant, to be powerful, and to be spectacular, are those basic human drives. And Jesus had to face them all. And he faces them all. And we don't know how long it took, but we knew that it took him to the edge of his endurance. But he persevered. And when he came back from that wilderness and came back to the villages, he had a way of dealing with life, a way with dealing with those kind of drives and desires in all of us that was completely different than anything that, he had, that we had seen before. And that's what we want to take a look at. So before we get to the fifth way, people always ask me, what are the first four ways? Well, let's take a look at that as quickly as we can. Because it's logical Before you want to know what the fifth way of Jesus is, what are the first four? Because we all deal typically with these drives and these needs and these pressures and these roadblocks in our lives in one of four ways. And as I was studying first century Judea and first century uh, Judaism, I came across what Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, calls the four philosophies of Israel. And there were four major sects, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And they each had different, different belief systems, different capacities, different roles in the people's lives. But more importantly, they each had a primary way that they dealt with the Roman occupation and the blockages to their goals and desires in their national life and their personal lives. The Sadducees were the consummate insiders. They were, aristoc- they were aristocracy. 
They were completely Hellenized, Greekified. They glommed on to whatever the power was du jour. They came to prominence two centuries before Jesus comes on the scene when the Greeks were in charge and they glommed onto the Greek kings and when the Jews successfully revolted, they glommed onto the Jewish kings and when the Roman came onto the scene, they glommed onto the Roman kings. They just went wherever the power was. And so their reaction to the blockages and the challenges that they saw in life was to yield to that power. If you can't beat them, you join them. And they just became that power. They yielded to it. And because of that, they were very successful because they were whatever they needed to be to whoever was in charge. The Pharisees were a different group. The Pharisees, their power was rooted in the people themselves. They set themselves up again over two to two and a half centuries as the lawyers of the law. They were the ones who interpreted the law. They were the ones who told the people when they were clean and when they were not and what they needed to do. And so all of their power was rooted in the law. But they were also the conservative right of their day. As the Greeks were doing their thing and kind of rolling over Jewish society and turning everything into Greek culture, they were the ones who were holding the line try not to let their culture slip away. Try not to let their religious values slip away. But what they did, instead of yielding to the power or just leaving the scene, was to stay within the system but continually try to manipulate it and try to influence it. So rather than yielding to power, they manipulated that power. They influenced it. They saw themselves as the ones who were going to hold the line, keep the culture, keep influencing, working behind the scenes, manipulating things until finally they could come in and take power again. Now the third group were the Essenes. These are the ones who looked around and said, a pox on all your houses. We're out of here because you are so corrupt. You Sadducees have completely sold out. Pharisees, you're, too, you're also corrupt. So we are leaving. And they went out into the deserts and they formed their own communities and they held on to their own belief system. So their solution was to simply exit and the latecomers to the scene, after the, the turn of, uh, from B.C. to A.D., were the zealots. And the zealots were the terrorists of their day. They began their life with a revolt in 6 A.D., 6 C.E., by Judas the Galilean. That ended, of course, in his death, and the Romans putting it down with no trouble at all. But the survivors of that rebellion fled into the hills, and they became guerrilla warriors, they were just like uh, guerrilla warriors today or terrorists today. Their job was to completely or continue to try to eat away at Roman power. They fomented riots and sedition, assassinations. They did whatever they could to destabilize the situation because they believed the Messiah was coming and they were the ones to usher him in. So their solution was to destroy. So to yield, to manipulate or influence, to exit or to destroy. And in the process of that, the Sadducees exploited the people, the Pharisees burdened them, the Essenes ignored them, and the Zealots terrorized them. From the people's point of view, there was no win here from any one of these four ways of dealing with it, with life. Now I want you to take this and extrapolate it down though, because we're talking about a national level and dealing with national problems. But like a compass rose, these are the four ways that we have of dealing with every problem that we find in life. Let me just read you just a little bit from the chapter. 
When the Sadducees, where the Sadducees exploited, the Pharisees burdened, the Essenes ignored the Judean people, and the Zealots terrorized them. There had to be four. Four ways, four philosophies. It's as if the number is hardwired into the things of the earth then and now, just as there are only four cardinal directions in which we can move, north, south, east, and west. There are four ways in which we can react to life's adversity, either individually or corporately. These four ways are the natural ways we use to cope with painful circumstances in our lives, unjust circumstances as we see them. Whether we see God as part of our lives or not, whether the struggle is being played out in spiritual or secular terms or a combination of both, the choices are the same. Neither good nor bad intrinsically, the four ways are simply the only tools we possess to move about the earth, to change the things we wish wish to change. They're necessary. When faced with difficult and intractable circumstances, the ones that won't go away, we can give in or try to influence and manipulate. Those are always the first alternatives, the easiest choices, because they require the least amount of change and confrontation. If they are not sufficient to relieve the pain and stress, then the decision can be made to abandon the ship or to destroy it. Each of the four ways, yielding, manipulating, exiting, and destroying, represents an escalation in the amount of change and confrontation a person or a group is willing to undergo to remake the circumstances of their world. Thomas Jefferson wrote this in the Declaration of Independence. Remember, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Wow. Is there insight there or what? The pain and frustration has to be great enough or the principles and ideals of the people strong enough to take them to the next level. Of course, these four ways don't normally exist in a pure state. Just as the Sadducees and Zealots also engaged in manipulation, and the Pharisees also yielded to power, there is usually a mixing of the four ways. There's north, south, east, and west, but also northwest and southeast, right? The compass provides 360 degrees to choose from at any given moment, but each degree is just one or a mixture of any two of the four cardinal directions, and so it is with the four ways. We can mix them into combinations, but there are still only four, and one will predominate. And so here's the idea. We use these four ways all the time, at all levels, whether it's national, nations and armies, whether it's churches, whether it's uh, city or state governments, or whether it's families. I mean, think about a difficult marriage right now. Those of you who have been either in a difficult marriage or a difficult relationship of any kind, as you're trying to live through that relationship, what are your choices? What can you do? Well, if you have a, you're facing a domineering personality, you can yield to that personality. You can let it go, right? Or you can try to manipulate and influence and get your way through other ways, the passive-aggressive this and that, and do whatever you need to do. You can cut and run. The divorce rate shows us a lot of people choose that option. Or you can destroy. And by destroying, it can be the attacking that goes on within usually marriages or significant other relationships. It's either verbal or it's psychological. Sometimes it's physical. And sometimes it even leads to lethal force. But these are the four choices. This is what we have to work with. It's always been thus, and it's not going to change. Because trying to get someplace on the surface of this earth, get the physical things that we need, those are the tools that we have to work with. Now, as I said, they're not bad, because the flip side of yielding is compromise. 
We need to be able to compromise. The flip side of manipulation is influence, influence seen positively. Exiting is really a means of setting boundaries, isn't it? We have to be able to set boundaries. And to destroy can be to protect when we need to do that as well. So these can be seen as positive or negative, but they're all necessary. But if you take these ways that we are so familiar with, and the church has done this for two millennia, unfortunately, use these ways to try to further spiritual goals, that's where it gets harmful. If you use these four ways to try to get somewhere spiritually, to grow your spiritual formation, to grow your spiritual walk, Jesus is here telling you emphatically it will not work. And in fact, what it will do is to color your perception so greatly that you won't be able to find your way anymore. If you want to go someplace spiritually, it's going to take and require a radical break from all the ways that you think you know how, about it, how to get the things that you need, that you're going to now apply to try to get the spiritual things that you need. Jesus comes out of the wilderness with a completely different way. This fifth way. The fifth way, the way of kingdom, is always heading in a completely different direction than any of the four ways travel. They are diametrically and unalterably unaligned because true change always comes from the opposite direction that the earth would have us believe. Always. Anything else is not the fifth way. Having used the four ways all our lives, the fifth way is maddeningly elusive. Yeshua never approaches it directly but snuck up on it through parable, metaphor, and the action of his life. It's the only way. Straight lines won't take us there. Yeshua's language reflects this as he tries to bend our hearts and minds around a new concept, that while the four ways are always working to make us relevant, powerful, and spectacular in order to find meaning in life, the fifth way simply makes life meaningful, which in turn makes us relevant, powerful, and spectacular. The fifth way makes life meaningful by making God's presence real in our lives. Yeshua encourages us to seek first the kingdom and all else would be added. The fifth way literally stands the four ways on their heads. Think about the wild language of Yeshua's difficult sayings as he tries to help us see that compared to the four ways, the fifth way is inside out, downside up, and backside front. Why is it so fundamentally different, these four ways in the fifth way? Here's why. Two things. The four ways try to affect the change from the outside in. They're always working from the outside in. In other words, the four ways are trying to change our circumstances in life to bring the connection, to bring the security and the meaning that we seek. Outside in, right? The fifth way works from the inside out. In other words, instead of trying to change circumstances, we change ourselves within the circumstances as they exist. Completely. That way, once we have changed ourselves within the circumstances, now we can see the connection and the security and the meaning in life. All spiritual change works from the inside out and not from the outside in. This is why Jesus' language reflects that, that spinning around, that diametrically opposed paradox because we're always trying to work things in the other direction, physically. The second thing is, is that the four ways always be begin at the point of need, at the point of the lack of something. And the action is to go out and acquire, 
Bring something in that will fill that need. And that is a never-ending process. When is the hole inside of you ever really filled? You will be on that hamster wheel until you drop. The fifth way works in the opposite direction. Instead of starting at the point of need, it starts at the point of abundance. That we are already filled. That everything that God has, has been given to us since the beginning of the world. It's already here. Why do we keep praying and striving for things that we already possess? So the fifth way seeks to release illusion, seeks to let go of all the things that blind us to the fact that everything is already here, spiritually speaking. And even as you go get the things that you need physically in life, the job, the wife, the husband, the, the, the income stream, whatever it happens to be, At the same time and layered on is the knowledge that everything that we really need and everything that we really are, from Jesus' point of view, is already here. He said, don't go looking for the kingdom out there. You're not going to find it by observation. Here it is. There it is. It's within you. It's among you. It's in the midst. It's here. Rejoice. The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. It's now. This is what he's trying to get across. So the four ways represent a striving after. The fifth way represents a pushing off and a letting go, a falling into God's embrace, realizing that it's already here. So many of Jesus' parables were trying to get that across to us. Take a look at this one at Luke 14. Right at verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, well, they were were watching him closely. Okay, so this wasn't just a random invitation. They're testing him. They're taking a look. They're going to find out what he's going to do, right? Now, skip down to verse 7. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. He's saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher, and then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So many of Jesus' sayings and parables and teachings are paradox. It's this counterintuitive juxtaposition of things. You know, He's trying to point out this elusive nature of his way, this way that he says is the only way to the Father, This fifth way, different from the other four. This inside-out, downside-up, backside-front way. Not about acquiring power, but accepting our powerlessness, allowing us to just be equal to each other, not trying to grab and strive and get something. Take a look at verse 12 now. He also went on to say that the one who to the one who invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
In other words, don't play that game. Don't be manipulating. Don't be jockeying for position. Don't invite the people who can help you in this quid pro quo, back-scratching kind of relationship. He says, don't go there. That's four-ways mentality. Now, it's going to work if you're trying to climb the social ladder in your community, but if you're trying to get to the kingdom, if you're trying to get to my Father, it's not going to take you there. In fact, it is going to damage you so severely that you won't be able to even see what's right in front of your face. This is what he's trying to get across to us. At Matthew 10:37, he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And at Matthew 20, 16, so the last will be first and the first last. He's, he's trying to drive this point home. There are dozens more examples of Jesus using just this kind of language and just this kind of imagery to try to get ourselves across that it's the opposite of what you think. As you go out and try to acquire, it's this pushing off and letting go, becoming the servant of all. Jesus says, the Son of Man, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. And that's exactly what he does. He serves everyone. There's this notion of the backside front. This idea here that we're not trying to be spectacular anymore. We're not trying to be different anymore. You know, We're recognizing the notion that God's love is already so perfect that we're going to be going at odds with ourselves if we try to do that. Take a listen to this. In our desire to be significant, we're driven to be different, right? We want to stand out from the crowd, to stand apart, head and shoulders. We think we have to be different to be significant. But everything the Father has is already ours. As long as we show up, we all get paid the same. And in the face of a perfect love that has no degree, we are not significant because we're different We're significant because we're the same. Hear that? We're not significant because we're different. We're significant because we're the same. If we can see past the four ways for just a moment, we will see that the compulsion to get that top spot is only an exhausting search to get what we already have. We are all first with God. We are all his favorites. He has the capacity to do that, to have an infinite number of best friends. The last shall be first and the first last, because in the end, those who seek to be first miss the way completely, laboring on for what they already possess. And those who are content to be last are still always first, with all all the sleepless nights and sweaty work. (laughs) The fifth way is a recognition of what is really here, what is really now. And what is now and here is not spiritual poverty. It's abundance. It's everything that God has to give right here, right now. Even in the midst of physical poverty, even in the midst of all the things that you still lack physically and need to get, legitimately need to get. The fifth way can see past those circumstances, can literally see past hasatan, see past the adversary, the challenger, the diverter, the one who leads us astray, can see past all of that and begin to actually see the truth. And once we can see the truth, we become free enough to start to give it away. One more passage. So to what does all this come? In terms of our choices, what does the fifth way look like? Well, at the risk of sounding like a greeting card or a song lyric, it looks like love. 
We use the four ways to make ourselves relevant in order to feel loved and needed and connected, to make ourselves powerful in order to feel in control of our lives and secure, to make ourselves spectacular in order to be noticed and, and important, and to live on in the minds of our descendants. We search for worthiness and personal meaning through all these means, but our four-way search is always vampire-like, trying to suck our meaning from the lives of others, diminishing their shalom in a vain effort to increase our own. But diminishing anyone else's shalom only diminishes ours as well, and most importantly, the fifth way shows us that the converse is also true. Increasing another's shalom increases ours as well. And in fact, it's the only way to do it. The only way we're going to increase our peace, our shalom, our fullness, is to increase that of others. It never works the other way around. This is critical to understand. That what we really have in life is what we give away. It always is moving in the opposite direction of what our drives would spur us on to do. Yeshua said, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life, you'll find it. If you want to be relevant in life, give relevance away. If you want to feel worthwhile and valuable, put value and worth into another person's life. If you want to be loved, be a lover and see how that makes you feel. If you want to be powerful, give power away by empowering others through your teaching and mentorship. If you want to be spectacular, give attention away by being the listener and the encourager. Nothing will focus someone's attention on you faster than really listening in a world full of noise. This is not a quid pro quo or mutual backscratching, but just a statement of what is. If we give only to receive back, we've re-entered the second way of manipulation and have received our reward in full. But if we give because we've lost our awareness of ourselves for just a moment, because we've really seen the person standing in front of us, and know in this moment the gift we have to give is what he or she really needs, that moment is a kingdom moment along the fifth way and the best definition of love imaginable. The only way we can freely give something away is if we already possess it in the first place. And the only way we know for sure whether we possess a thing is if we can freely give it away. No strings attached. Whether relevance power or spectacular meaning we'll know that it's really ours that it really exists within us when we can see its effect existing in the life of another person we will only know the presence of our human fulfillment when we see its effect in others it's the only way of Jesus to the Father to see the reality of our connection security and meaning playing out in the lives of everyone around us is kingdom is the life that we really seek. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Stop doing things the way that you have learned to do them. Make the break. Go through the disorientation and all of the stuff that it's going to take as you spin your head around to realize that the Father is coming from a completely different direction, from inside out, and the things that we need are the things that we actually give away, and we'll start to understand and when we take that mentality back to the red letters of the New Testament, we will see Jesus' message jumping off the page at us. 
what, all, what seemed oblique before, what seemed opaque before, which made no sense before and was only confusing. I'm going to go back to Paul because Jesus doesn't make any sense. Suddenly we'll see all of that relevance and all of that meaning and he will guide us unerringly each time right back to the Father's presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. It seems that these concepts are so simple, but they get complicated as we try to work through them. So help us to work through the complexity. Help us to work through the distraction and and just get back to the simplicity of your message and who you are. Father, we thank you that you are here right now. And we ask that you would help us to make this, this turn, to see where you really stand in our lives, that you're already here, and we just have to let go and just become a part of your moment and your kingdom. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence, for your model, for your teaching, for your sacrifice, and everything that you did so that we can understand that nothing stands between us and your kingdom, and your Father. And we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.